I think it's going to be really critical for, I think, the narrative to start to get a lot more serious around what's actually needed. I really worry that a lot of time has been lost focusing on solutions that aren't able to make a global impact at scale. And we really need to be focusing on enabling technology development and innovation for solutions that really, truly can scale to meet the challenge. So for me, I think nuclear is one of those. Welcome to the Future Engineering Club podcast. My name's Jack Palomas and join me as I speak to some of the brightest minds in the built environment, hearing firsthand their experience building the future of our planet. For this episode, I'm joined by Michelle Brecklesbauer, VP of Strategy at Last Energy, a startup that brings small modular nuclear reactors to Europe. Over the course of the episode, I speak to Michelle about the fascinating history of the nuclear power industry, the growth factors that have allowed it to become the energy superpower that we're familiar with today, and the role of modular design and delivery in rapidly transforming the way that we bring this energy capability to market. Before I pass over to Michelle, if I may ask a favor, if you enjoy this episode, please consider giving it a share on LinkedIn and a follow on Spotify, as it really helped promote our conversation to others who might find it helpful. Now, let's welcome Michelle. So my name is Michelle Brechtelsbauer. I'm Vice President of Strategy with Last Energy, which is a micro-nuclear power plant developer. So looking at very small nuclear technology and bringing that technology directly to industrial customers throughout Europe. But my background is actually in chemical engineering and public policy. I got my start in the technology space researching CCS applications for industrial decarbonization, and then eventually got the policy bug, as they say, moved to Washington, D.C., where I'm currently based and started working for our, our government here under the Obama administration and then continuing on in the next administration as well, really focused on all things climate and energy and environment before I moved from the public sector into the private sector where I am today, which is where I personally feel there's a lot more opportunity to have real impact on the global challenges of climate and decarbonization. Amazing. And the nuclear industry is such a fascinating one. For the folks who maybe aren't as familiar with the nuclear industry, what have been the sort of the key historic events and how has nuclear evolved over time? Yeah, for sure. I think especially for audiences that might be new to nuclear power. One thing I'll just say at the beginning about myself, I was not super familiar with the history of nuclear or the technology through a formal engineering manner. I actually came to nuclear technology from the climate angle, personally looking for technological solutions that could be applied quickly to address climate change, energy poverty, energy access, that type of thing. And when you look at the fundamentals of this technology and other energy technologies, and of course, focusing on energy, because that is really the key linchpin for, for a lot of the challenges that we have today. So if you're new to nuclear and you just want to geek out on what is nuclear, I, I fully advise people to go do their own research. But yeah, so that's just the plug for, for go do your own research because it's really cool stuff. <laughs> Looking at the, the history of nuclear power, and I think right now is a really interesting time. Once again, nuclear is in the, the media and the, the public zeitgeist with this Oppenheimer film. But nuclear has been around really since the dawn of the atomic age. Fission was discovered when we were looking at atomic weapons use. But then it became back in, I guess, the 1950s, recognized as a tool for peace. So this goes back to President Eisenhower in the U.S., the Atoms for Peace program, which really sought to, in, in the wake of World War II, bring 
countries together around the peaceful use of of energy applications and that being an arresting on on this amazing technology that that we had discovered and invented. So the the first reactors that we ended up building led by a company called Westinghouse and developed the what's the the most commonly used type of nuclear power plant technology reactor technology today called the pressurized water reactor PWR. So they were able to commercialize that technology and really became a key player in the United States. I'm obviously American, but Similar, I think, also in the UK, where you're based, and in the US, the electricity markets, when this technology was being commercialized, were very different than they are today. They were pretty simple, they're uncomplicated, and they really allowed for utilities to adopt a technology and vertically integrate in order to build out that technology. So they were in charge of both generation and distribution, and they were able to set up the financial incentives in a way that really made sense for the utilities. And utilities were able to essentially push on all construction costs to the rate payers, right? Because electricity costs are going up so they can do these big mega projects and they're actually incentivized to build bigger and bigger projects. So that's a way that the, the first wave of nuclear power plants was built in the United States, roughly 100 of them with this utility model. But then something happened, which which was a reversal of that trend, where essentially the construction costs started surpassing the initial cost estimates, and you started seeing serious increases in, in the prices of these projects. So around the same time as a Three Mile Island incident occurred, so Three Mile Island was a essentially a, a pretty minor incident. No one was actually harmed from radiation in that sense, but that just happened to happen right at the same time as this economic change in in the business model and, and how construction costs were really making these projects unprofitable. So in the United States, essentially after Three Mile Island and then eventually Fukushima, our story becomes plagued by regulation. So we saw a lot of complex regulatory challenges brought in to the reactors that were still trying to be built out. And in particular, after Fukushima, the industry itself actually shifted its entire business model. So previously, where the, the business model was to build nuclear power plants to sell power and, and create a profit that way, after Fukushima, it really became about selling safety. So Every nuclear power plant that was currently operating could get several million dollars worth of just safety upgrades for an existing asset. And so that creates jobs for everybody who's in the safety space. And then, of course, it also means that any new nuclear power plants, though, have to take in these new safety requirements. And so it really became an, an industry of selling safety. And in order to sell safety, your business model actually and your messaging has to be about selling fear. So that's a really detrimental shift that has plagued the current industry in the U.S., but really most of the Western world that that still had legacy nuclear power plants, but also was trying to potentially build out these, these larger ones. So that's a really interesting point, because I know that around the sort of 1980s or so, there was a massive big boom in the use of nuclear power. I think it was around sort of 1980s, about 30% of France was powered by nuclear yes. power of the EDF being one of the big global juggernauts there. But then you then see around the sort of the late 1990s, sort of 2000 market, then sort of teeters off. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the 
80s were really when a lot of the power plants that were started construction in the 1970s started coming online. The market dynamics I was describing in the United States, which are similar to the United Kingdom, were the utility model, whereas France and other countries like Korea, and now we see the UAE, had nuclear more integrated into government. And so government was, so if the utility has to be the one passing on everything to the ratepayers, if, if the economics don't work out, then you, you really can't make that happen. Whereas France was able to, by having government so involved and having EDF, essentially like a quasi-government entity and similar with, with KEPCO in Korea, those economics were pretty different. Now, I will say the overall approach to selling safety, of course, did creep its way into the French nuclear program and the Korean nuclear program, particularly in Korea, given its proximity to Fukushima. And that a lot of that was warranted, right? The International Atomic Energy Agency, the IEA, and and came together following the Fukushima incident and worked with regulators around the world to understand what safety systems might need to be improved. The extent to which the industry took it was incentivized by the fact that they weren't building anything new, right? A new nuclear power plant comes online in the Western world, maybe once a decade, if at this point. And so if you're in the nuclear business, you have to sell something. And that's something you can sell is safety and safety systems and safety upgrades. And so we've really captured our regulators to have us require more of these systems so that we can then sell and, and, and sustain an industry, which is really unfortunate. And that's a really interesting dynamic because nuclear in itself is very much re representative of energy security. And there's a lot of stability and energy independence that a country gains when they invest into nuclear, which is almost at odds with some of the messages that you've described that some people mm -hmm. in the industry push. The, the role of nuclear as providing energy independence, I think is a really interesting one. And where do you see it at the minute and how do you see it vary by geography? Yeah. So if you just think about, again, going back to the fundamental technologies, the you know, energy technologies that a nation could look at, it's it all starts with what do we have in terms of our resources, right? So you know, if you're blessed with a lot of hydropower, like in Brazil or Argentina, that's a great baseload supply. Geothermal in, in certain areas of the world, wind and solar obviously make a lot of sense, maybe especially wind down in areas like Chile or solar really anywhere in, in the Sunbelt region of the globe. But if you don't have those natural resources, you're going to look at things that you can move into your territory, right? So maybe you can rely on, you either have your own natural gas or oil reserves, or you can hopefully have geopolitical partners that will give you stable supplies of oil and natural gas. But then nuclear, it's completely separate of all of those things. It's not geographic dependent. You don't have to move it anywhere. You can actually have your own homegrown supply of limitless power if you can cultivate a nuclear culture and an industry in your own country. And so with big power plants, right, that technology wasn't fit for global export. It was really great for like the big Western powers we've traditionally been speaking about that have really concentrated demand, really great built out grids. What we're seeing now, though, with the advent of SMRs or small modular reactors and micro reactors is you're going to have the same advantages of zero carbon baseload power, but really truly sited anywhere. So if you go from a gigawatt scale plant, right, 
You have to have water cooling. There's all these environmental constraints you have to have, but you get really, really small to the micro level. Your your seismic considerations are completely different. All the environmental considerations are completely different. You can air cool them and you really can put them anywhere on islands, near big cities, near small cities. You can have a nuclear power plant providing energy for a single industrial user, even towns in Alaska. So yeah, so I think with, with SMRs, you really do get that advantage of, of being able to site anywhere. So SMRs, would you mind just breaking down exactly what we mean by that? Yeah. So how does it vary from the sort of traditional big plants that yeah. we mind? So first is size, right? So the traditional power plants are gigawatt scale. SMRs, small modular reactors, are actually, I think, definitionally around the 100 to 500 megawatt range. So here, I'll just name some some companies in case your audience is familiar, right? So the, the top end of that range, you have companies like Rolls-Royce, which is a UK company. Their reactor is about 477 megawatts. So it's actually still really big. And then you have in that maybe medium range of the SMR category, around 300 megawatts, you see companies like GE Hitachi or Westinghouse with, again, still pretty big, right? These are medium towns or major industrial centers where they could be powering. And in the 100 megawatt range, you have some as well. Then there's gap. And then that's where my company, Last Energy, comes in at the micro scale. So with micro, we're really between 21 and 20. So 20 is the biggest end. For us, it's about industrial users at the 20 megawatt scale. Then there's even smaller players at five megawatts and at one megawatt. So the micro reactors and then the SMRs are really what we talk about when we talk about this broader category called AMRs, introducing another word, advanced modular reactors. The terminology in this sector is absolutely insane. But but ultimately, yeah. So what are the hallmarks of SMRs? So first is, I guess, flexibility due to size, right? So you can have a different, a different way that you actually distribute this power since it's not so large. So you can actually scale it up as well. So you can imagine for our case, we could build one 20 megawatt power plant for an industrial customer, but it's pretty rare that you only need 20 megawatts. Maybe you need 60, maybe you need 100. And so we can actually build three or five of these power plants side by side right next to where the customer is needed. In the micro range, we have technological advantages that allow us to site closer to industry, like air cooling. The bigger ones, like the Rolls Royces, don't necessarily have that, but they are still able to locate those power plants more flexibly where generation is needed, maybe along points of on the grid where there's congestion. This is one of the things that, that Rolls-Royce is looking at doing in the UK, for example. But they have brought in the word modular more and more in that category. The way that the larger SMRs bring in the concept of modularity is in individual components and systems. So let's actually first define the word modular. So modular is actually a construction technique originally pioneered by the oil and gas sector. So familiar with offshore drilling, for example, if you're going to build an offshore drilling platform, you're not going to go out there with two by fours and a whole bunch of concrete in the middle of the ocean. You're going to need to build essentially most of your of your facility onshore and then bring it out on a ship and then put it together. So the idea of modularity is that you break a big thing into small modules or components, and then you, you manufacture that at one site, 
you ship it to the site where it's actually going to be operating and you put it back together. Data centers are built with modular construction. Homes increasingly are being built with modular construction, right? You, you're even seeing almost like 3D printed, it looks like kind of 3D printed blocks coming in to, to create apartment buildings these days. So it's just taking that same concept and, and breaking, breaking down complex components, shipping them to site and then putting them back together. So the big ones, they do that where maybe you're a pressure vessel or a pump will come in three pieces instead of one. And what that helps with is really just for shipping and transportation. But at the micro scale, we're actually using modular construction a lot more like the oil and gas sector intended it to be used. So our power plant is made up of individual modules that contain equipment. The equipment is already inside. It doesn't get cut up. The modules are the things that snap together more like a Lego kit on site. So what that affords is tons of benefits. First is really around addressing the, the, the biggest challenges we've seen with the large builds, which is around cost and schedule. So if you're able to control most of your construction time and actually put that in a factory setting, then you're going to have tremendous benefits in terms of reducing time delays, especially in infield construction, but also controlling costs. So we can factory fabricate in, in that sense. And then of course, when we ship to site, we've already tested everything in the factory setting. And then a few other key things that are benefits for SMRs. First around safety, the smaller your, your nuclear power plant, actually the better in terms of safety systems. You can have essentially, as I said, the inspection phase in the factory setting, but you can also have new safety features that you maybe couldn't physically do given the size of a gigawatt scale plant. So you can have more steel, you can have different systems, digital controls, other innovations that, that support with safety. And then into the final one is just supply chain. You spoke about the use of these, these micro plants. So we typically know of the nuclear industry as being these sort of massive big plants that are then plugged into the grid and very much energy for at a country level. Yeah. How does how does the customer type, the user type, vary with, with your plant? Sure. So one of the things that Last Energy has really pioneered that's pretty unique to, to really just us is, so we didn't just look at, so for the technology side, we looked at the nuclear sector. For the business model, we did not look at the nuclear sector because that business model has, has not been working. Where we looked to was really the renewable sector and the PPA model, so the power purchase agreement model. So this is where an energy user, or they just contract to get the power and the heat that they need. They don't care about technology selection or operating an asset. They just want to know that when they they need power for their facilities and for their operations, it's on. So that's what we do. We sign PPAs directly with customers. So that means that we can work with, we were, end up working with primarily energy users that, that value the, the merit, value nuclear for a few key factors being baseload power, right? So they typically have operations that are 24 seven. So think chemicals manufacturing, steel manufacturing, really any heavy manufacturing process that needs that line consistently running. So it's the, it's the baseload power. They have high energy prices now, and those energy prices could be reduced if they go behind the meter or behind the grid. So we are able to build out private wires to our customer to give them kind of that reliability of supply, but also a decrease in, in energy costs because they don't have to pay that transmission and distribution pricing. And then finally, 
a lot of these customers are looking to decarbonize their existing operations. So a lot of our customers either have CHP, so combined heat and power plants, maybe from natural gas, biomass, or waste to energy already on site. And of course, those emit carbon dioxide, NOx, SOx, other pollutants that they're looking to, to decrease their reliance on. So as they have to phase those out, we can build our power plants to replace those in a one-to-one fashion. And the decarbonization point is a really important one. What does the role of nuclear play in the, the efforts to decarbonize our energy supply? Yeah, I mean, this is why I really got into the whole, <laughs> into nuclear in the first place. We're looking to decarbonize the planet essentially, right? That's that's in two main form factors. One is electricity, right? So fixing the grid. But the main one, the big one that we don't often think about or talk about is heat. And that's where nuclear really has a distinct advantage. So renewables, batteries, wind, they don't produce heat. Only ways to get it right now, geothermal, biomass, waste to energy, nuclear. And so of all of those, which ones are can you build anywhere and are zero carbon really just nuclear? So for, for heat and for these big manufacturing types of, of industries, like I mentioned earlier, that's really where we see a, a big need. Of course, there are ways to electrify certain processes, right? For steel manufacturing, for example, you can have electric arc furnaces as opposed to thermal furnaces, but that's not going to be a solution for everything. And then, of course, it also another decarbonization pathway you can talk about is aviation fuel and liquid fuels. This is where you get into hydrogen production. All of those carriers of energy, I wouldn't call them energy sources in and of themselves, but those carriers of energy also have to be produced with some sort of source. And that has to be, first of all, ideally baseload because you want that continuous process, but it has to be zero carbon. And so nuclear really enables that new hydrogen economy, that new SAF economy that we've been talking about. And then finally, one that I actually started my career in, carbon capture. We've had some incredible advances in direct air capture technology over the past decade. So this is the concept that you can essentially have giant fans that are pulling, you're filtering air through them to pull carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. Now, of course, CO2 is in, measured in parts per million, right? Which means you have to pull a lot of air through these machines in order to actually capture any CO2 in a way that's actually meaningful. So that means you're going to have to use a lot of power. And to do this in an actual effective manner, you're going to have to do this all over the globe. I mean, you can imagine turning like the entirety of Greenland into a DAC factory, really, if you wanted to make a a dent in, in the amount of CO2 that's already in the atmosphere. So nuclear is another really great technology to enable direct air capture. The, the point around the scale of DAC needed, it, it's quite a funny one because I think I, I worked it out a while ago and I think it was something like we need to spend about sort of 5% of, UK, of global GDP on DAC floods at the current cost. So it's just really not feasible to really yeah. rely on, say, DAC to, to solve our challenges. And we need to look at sort of lower carbon energy sources. Your point around nuclear being a, a lot better option rather than, say, biomass in terms of sort of land and resource requirements. Would you mind expanding slightly on that? Because it's really interesting. Nuclear, in our, in a lot of people's minds, it's a massive site. So I know that we've now debunked that. And actually, the future very much looks closer to sort of micro sites dotted around yeah. most of large industry processes. But what are the land and resource requirements exactly for, say, a micro plant? Yeah, so our power plants have a very tiny footprint. So they're about 0.2 hectares or half an acre. So if you're 
if you're used to the football pitch analogy, it's actually a third of a football pitch, a soccer pitch for Americans, but it's a really small footprint itself. But of course, that's all, right? Like that's the plant itself and then the reactors in there. There's not pipelines or forests or coal mines or anything else, right, that we have to have to have in order to to, to power these facilities. Again, it's the, the nature of, of nuclear technology and the fuel that we use for nuclear power plants. With biomass, sure, the, the facility itself is actually almost the size. If you look at like a 20 megawatt biomass plant and a 20 megawatt nuclear power plant, like the way that we've designed ours, they're almost the same footprint itself. But you have to take into account all of the feedstock of the fuel as well. Solar and wind, Similarly, have really large footprints, a, a 200 megawatt solar facility versus a 200 megawatt nuclear facility is imagine a, a building versus every single farm that's, that you can see out, outside of your, your window. I mean, it's, it's a really large scale. The CapEx and OPEX piece is, is also quite interesting. How does the CapEx and the OPEX compare for a, a micronuclear plant to, say, other sources of renewable energy? I'm conscious that's with say offshore wind, for example, I think it's like 90% of the cost is within the CapEx phase and actually it's quite, actually quite low cost to run. How does that compare with a, a say a micro plant? So each of our power plants is actually less than a hundred million dollars capital expenditure to build. And that's including the first six years of fuel and, and services as well. That's a cost that we, as the developer, actually take on. We build out the asset, we own it, and we actually have investors invest in the project. With solar and wind, I actually don't know LCOE statistics off the top of my head, but it's, it's, it's essentially a different business model as well that you have to take into consideration. So our whole objective as a company in designing our nuclear power plant has been to design something that we can get privately financed. And that's really the, the key thing for us, right? So if you look at these big gigawatt scale projects, one of the reasons they're so complex is because they have to have, fine, they cost billions of dollars. I mean, I think Hinkley Point C is 40 billion pounds. That is an insane amount of money. The only people who can bankroll that are going to be governments, a lot of pension funds, maybe in other countries you, you get in World Bank type institutions. But Big multinational banks and governments are the only only people that can finance those projects. So what we wanted to do was make our capital expenditure so small that we could go out to the, the normal private capital markets and, and raise project financing for that. So that's what we've done. With a under $100 million price check, we're able to bring in just private financing, which means there's also no strings attached to that money. Whereas with governments and these larger institutions, the risk on a loan for $40 billion is just absolutely insane. So that's going to require and necessitate a lot of government oversight. Whereas when you're talking about smaller check sizes, you just don't have that that level of, of over, oversight from from the, the risk perspective, but you also are able to then streamline your, your projects a lot quicker. So yeah, capital expenditure is massive in terms of ensuring that we actually build out the next generation. That's amazing. And it's so exciting to see these developments in the renewable energy market. It must be so exciting for you coming from a CCS background and seeing the evolution of the nuclear industry and really playing a key part in that. What excites you the most in the world of climate tech? Well, for one, I think it's going to be really critical for, I think, the narrative to start to get a lot more serious around what's actually needed. I, I pride myself on being an optimist, but I, I think it's only good 
and okay to be an optimist if you're informed, right? What is it that you're being optimistic about? I really worry that a lot of time has been lost focusing on solutions that aren't able to make a global impact at scale. And we really need to be focusing on enabling technology development and innovation for solutions that really truly can scale to meet the challenge. So for me, I think nuclear is one of those. I think a whole bunch of other technologies that are that have probably been discussed on your on your podcast as well need to be in that list. But we can't be just so optimistic that that we actually don't commit ourselves to action. These next years are going to be so critical. I mean, it is insanely hot <laughs> right now. This summer has been absurd. There's there's a lot of warning signs about the current state of the climate and the environment that every single day that we delay is it's going to be problematic. So when I say we have to you have to be serious, I that really comes from like the the primary frustration that I've seen throughout my career, which is the role of government in making a lot of this happen. And my true belief that the private sector needs to be able to lead on this. Private sector should be incentivized correctly, right? That's a good role for government. But government often tries to get too involved and ends up trying to pick winners far too early in an innovation cycle that needs all horses running in the race. And of course, there are checks on safety and on ensuring value for money and protecting the ratepayer and the taxpayer and all of these things on human health, of course, that government needs to be involved with. But when it comes to decarbonization, I really would love to see government be a lot more both hands on in terms of creating the right incentives and the right playing fields, but also hands off in terms of letting companies really truly lead and companies of all sizes, the big, of course, but also the small, because that's really where a lot of these innovations that I've seen in the nuclear sector, in the direct air capture space, but but also just in the overall ethos of, of climate tech really thrive. You talk about these incentives at a government level. Would the Inflation Reduction Act in the US be a good example of that? Or are you thinking of a different type of incentive? I think the IRA is actually a really promising policy. It essentially is just a ton of money for people with good ideas. Now, of course, that's going to require a lot of administration, but I have been encouraged to see other countries see the IRA and try to essentially copy what they can so they they don't lose out given that the IRA really is very protectionist and, and could create adverse economic forces. But yeah, so I, I think that's that's an interesting policy. I think Ultimately, though, it needs to come down to building things, right? Regulation is is certainly one. But having enabling regulation, one of the reasons I love working in the United Kingdom is because the regulatory system in the UK is truly enabling, especially for nuclear power, but really for essentially the way that the health safety executive set up the idea of risk-informed regulation back in the 70s, and which applies to really all industries, I think really supports innovation and enables companies to focus on the challenges that they see as most important to actually being able to build and, and make progress in terms of either new nuclear or just new project development. So I think that there should be, certainly in the United States, that message is starting to become understood around the impediments that our regulatory system has put up on new nuclear power development. But ultimately, I think it's an incentivizing building stuff, right? So that's ensuring that agencies are staffed 
in the regulators, but also permitting and all of those processes are smooth and streamlined as much as possible. And that wherever the government can step in to help things get built quicker and faster and cheaper, they should be doing that. So the DOE has been doing that in the United States, for example. I know that the UK government and the Department of Energy Security Net Zero is looking to try to accelerate that for nuclear, but also for hydrogen, for direct air capture, and a whole bunch of other technologies and to really jumpstart some of those technologies. So those governments, I think, have the right idea, but it's not just having the right idea. It's actually turning that into action and looking for ways to have wins within within your own political lifetime, if you will, right? So an MP should be thinking about how can I ensure that by the time I'm up for re-election, I've actually got some electrons on the grid, as opposed to I've set up a policy framework that maybe 10 years from now, we'll see new electrons on the grid. You've been listening to the Future Engineering Club podcast. Thanks so much for joining me. I really hope you enjoyed it. Stay tuned for next week's episode. And in the meantime, give me a shout on LinkedIn and let me know what you think. Thanks and goodbye.